what is this, time management? <laughs> well, I'm going to do something. Uh, I'll explain, you know, maybe what I think about time management, what I, they assign that to me, but then they say, well, do what you want. So, uh, but, so I'm going to do something a little bit different uh, that has nothing to do with time management in one sense uh, at first, and then we'll open it up maybe for questions and, uh, you know, about time management or whatever you want. But if you have your Bible, turn to 1 Samuel 16. And I want to look at the call of David and uh, God setting his life apart for him. 1 Samuel 16, it says, Now the Lord said unto Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing as I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I am uh, sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. Well, Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, Well, take a heifer with you. Say that I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me the one that I name to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said, and he went to Bethlehem, and the elders of the town trembled at his coming, and he said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Yes, peaceably have I come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Uh, then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And so it was when they uh, came that he looked at Eliab and he said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Do not look at his appearance, nor at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord uh, does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward countenance or appearance, but the Lord looks upon the heart. Well, so Jesse called Abinadab, and he made him to pass. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Shammah came by, and neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then he made seven of his sons, uh, passed before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And well, Samuel said to Jesse, he says, Are these all the young men here? And he said, Well, there remains yet the youngest, uh, and there he is keeping the sheep. Well, Samuel said unto Jesse, Send him, uh, bring him to me, and I will not sit down until he comes. And then he sent him, and he brought him in, and he was ruddy and of young eyes, bright eyes, and good looking. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and anoint him. This is the one. Samuel took the horn of oil, and he anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose, and he went to Ramah. Here is perhaps to me one of the most important stories, I think, in all of the Bible. I really look at this, what is happening here, as, as, as incredible it's, uh, you know, to understand. Because here God uh, is looking there and telling something that how he thinks that is so different from how we think as human beings. He makes a statement here that is universal. It has always been true everywhere you go. You cannot stop it from happening. And that is man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. It's just that simple. But the simple thing here is that you do look at it. You know, what is going on here is that, uh, you know the story, Saul had been a bad king. He hadn't obeyed the Lord. God was done with him. He's removed him. He's going to raise up another. And now God is coming to Samuel and he's telling Samuel, I've got somebody else that I want to raise up that's going to become king. I want you to go down to Bethlehem. And he says, anoint, separate Jesse, a man, a Bethlehemite down there, and I'm going to anoint one of his sons. And so prepare him for this and I, I will show you who he is when you get there. We said, I can't go do that. If, if Samuel hears that I'm going down to do this, he'll kill me. He's not going to give up being king. He's not going to give up his throne to somebody willingly like that. And he says, don't worry about it. Just go down and tell him that you're going to sacrifice. You're just going to go down there to worship if anything comes up about it. Well, he comes down and there, you know, here Samuel comes to this little town of Bethlehem. And when, you know, Samuel, I mean, the stature of Samuel, I mean, there within the entire Hebrew world. I mean, he was it. He was the, he was the man. And now... He comes to this little town and they tremble. What are you doing here? Are we in trouble? What is it? He said, no, no, no. I just came down here, sacrifice. I'm peaceable. There's no problem going on here. And so, I mean, this is big, whatever's happening. And then Samuel uh, goes and he takes Jesse and he, and he sanctifies them. He sets them apart. Let's Jesse and his family know something tomorrow is going to happen with you. 
that is incredible. They didn't know what it was. They didn't know what was going on, but here there's this special separation of them for some act of God that's going to happen within that family. And here the night before, you know, this happens. Well, the next morning, the family gets up. They say, whatever it is, it's going to happen. But then dad, he sends the youngest, David, out to go tend the sheep. And uh, here is, uh, uh, you go take care of the sheep and uh, we'll, uh, you know, we'll, we, 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 you won't be needed today. And here, uh, you know, next thing you know, uh, he, he, the thing goes on. Samuel comes and there, you know, is, he says, I want to see your sons. And he has them pass before him. And as the sons pass before him, he looks at Eliab, the oldest, the biggest, the strongest. And he said, oh, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Ah, this is him. Because he knew only too well whoever it was that he anointed. He anointed, he put that guy on, you know, that X right on that guy's forehead. He just marked him there. He, whatever, whoever it was he anointed there, when that gets out, that this guy has now been anointed to become king, Saul. He's got to deal with Saul. Now, Saul, we're told about him. He was a huge man and he was a great warrior. Yeah, and Saul, we're actually told about, he was a huge man. We don't know how big he was, but the Bible says that he stood head and shoulders above the men of Israel. So there's a lot of expositors think he could have been up to seven feet tall. He was a huge man himself. And so here he knows whoever it is he anoints. He just put him in the ring with Saul. And uh, that's, he kind of, you know, and, and here, so he then immediately, this is, this is, the, this is our best shot at this. I, I did, I speak, you know, he rebukes him there and he says, look, stop it. But he makes this statement. He says, man, this is all man, everybody. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And here, you know, and when you would look here that man has always done this. We cannot help it because we're finite. All I know is, is I look at all of you and I can just go up and down the row and I will have an opinion about you. You know, so everybody does. We see nationality, we see either big, they strong, are they good looking, are they clumsy, are they, what do they look like to us, and, and we, and we it, I, it's superficial. What do I see? And out of that, I, there's some sort of opinion. I, I look at the outward appearance. Every one of us does. I played sports growing up a lot of times, and you immediately, when I would walk into the room, you know, there on the team, who do I have to beat out? What's the position I want? You would look there at everybody else. You'd size them all up. Every time you play, you size up. You, you, you go, wherever you go, you're sizing up. You're looking. And that's, that's natural man. But here we have, he says, man looks at the outward appearance. And of course, hello, who did it first of all? Samuel himself. Samuel looked at the outward appearance, not the heart. He didn't even really, as, as spiritual, as godly, and as powerful, and as anointed, and separated unto God as Samuel was himself. He made the same mistake that every man makes, every human being makes. He looked at the outward appearance. And here he completely just on that, that's all he needed to, to, to form his opinion. And here this wasn't just simply Samuel that did this, that looked with, at the outward appearance. It was also something uh, there that, that David's father looked at the outward appearance. David's own father there. I mean, there when here, the, all, something special is happening. They had all been separated. They had all been there in this, you know. So, and, and somehow or another, his own father seemed to deliberately not want him there. They could have easily had anybody. They took care of each other's sheep all the time. They, you know, they, they, that was just the way the, na the, natural, the, the, the nation was. People were. He could have had anybody, any friend, any anybody else distant. But no, David won't go watch the sheep today. You know, sometimes, I don't know if any of you are ever the youngest in your family, you know, stuff, but the, uh, you know, when, uh, the youngest always, you know, is the one that's embarrassing, you know. They're the one that comes along and squirming, making, hey, come on, settle down, settle down. Stop it, you know. I'll never forget one time we were driving somewhere, and our youngest, we're driving, and he's just being crazy. And finally, I just stopped. I, we're driving someplace, and I said, would you stop it? Just stop it. You're acting like a six-year-old. And he turned to me, and he says, Dad, I am six years old. I'll never <laughs> I picked the wrong age. 
but I mean, you know, we just put down somehow, and we did the, the, the youngest, no, you can't, we're, we're going to play a game you can't play. You know, you don't fit in. You're not big enough, or you're not smart enough, or you're not something. Always there, you know, that, that's the one in trouble. You know, the, and it always gets played. When he was too young to talk, the youngest, to respond or defend himself, anything that went wrong, they looked at it, Donnie did it. Donnie did it. Donnie said, what did I do? I didn't do anything. You know, but they could blame him for everything. He got blamed for all sorts of stuff. There, and, you know, there was his fault. One time, Gene is actually changing his diapers. When he's this little kid, changing his diapers, and there he's got on, and she looks at him and says, oh, boy, something, boy, did you make a big mess today. And he t says to Gene, Marky did it. <laughs> she said, no, I don't think Marky did this. He, he wasn't wearing your diapers, buddy. It was you. You know, but on how the youngest, well, David, his own father, didn't invite him to this thing. And when you look at the, and all the way through David's life, in the next chapter, David and Goliath, the famous story, the, old, the three older brothers are sent off to war. And they're fighting. David, the youngest, his father, you know the story. His dad sends David with some cheese and stuff to go get the captains, give this thing to them, see how the battle's going. David comes there and Goliath has come out and, he, and, and he's choosing everybody off and mocking Israel. And David says, what will be done to the guy that takes him down? There's a reward? Oh, yeah. Well, I'll do this. And his brothers are mad at him. Eliab says, he says, I know your naughtiness of heart. What are you doing here, you squirmy little kid? Now do your kid, then go home. I mean, his own brothers didn't think anything of him. You know, uh, then when word gets out that David did indeed, that they were looking for anybody, any volunteer, that would go out and fight Goliath. Nobody would volunteer. Nobody would do it. This guy's nine and a half feet tall. Even Saul himself, who had never, who had a gray warrior, he wouldn't go out and fight him. See, I mean, even Saul knew one of the reasons he probably won is he was always the biggest and the strongest. He, he looked down at, he never looked up at anybody in his life. And he realized, why do I win so much? Why am I a great warrior? Because I'm big. Well, why is this guy unconquerable? Because he's bigger than anybody. Saul wouldn't fight him. Nobody would fight him. And all of a sudden, David comes along. David said, I'll fight him. And, and Saul hears about it. Well, bring him here. And he looks at David and he says, oh, man. He says, you are but a youth. You're just a little kid. This man has been a warrior since he was a youth. Saul didn't think anything of him. But he looked at him and he says, wait, you don't understand. God's on me. I killed the lion and the bear. A lion and a bear. Usually the animals, when you, you know, you'd, you'd scare them away. You know, when they would come along, lions were, nothing was afraid of David. Animals, nobody was looked at, thought of anything of him. Goliath, when he, then he goes out to fight Goliath, he does get sent out. He does, all right, this guy at least will start the battle. He does go out. Goliath looks at him and he can't, you send me a kid? I don't want to fight this kid. I mean, here, could you imagine your world heavyweight champion of the world and somebody sends in a 13-year-old kid to fight you? Oh, you want to fight him? Oh, man, what a tough guy you beat him up, a 13-year-old. He didn't even want to fight him himself. He said, you send me a little... He called him chicken feed. He said, I'm going to feed you to the birds. He says, this is your bird seed, your chicken feed. Don't you... Isn't there a man among you? No, he didn't... David, he, David himself... He didn't think anything of him. Nobody thought anything of David. And David himself, one time he says, I am a worm and no man. David could look at his own. He, he, David agreed, they're all right. Samuel's right. My dad's right. My brothers are right. Saul is right. Goliath is right. Everybody's right about me. I am nothing. Nothing. And here, because man, he was always the least wherever he went. There was always in the room somebody bigger and stronger and better than he was on the outward. And here the thing is, is that this has always been man's nature. But here he says, man looks at the outward appearance. And David, you are, you are the prime example of it. But he says, God looks at the heart. God doesn't care about the outward. God cares about the inward. Because you see, the interesting thing is, is to God heart is everything you know that and, and and you can have everything in the world but heart and in god's economy you're nothing 
But in God's economy, you can have absolutely nothing in the world but heart, and now you're everything. And there's something there, you may, you may say, well, why is that so? Why is that so? And it's very simple, because let me tell you, there is only one part of you that is exclusively you, that is truly yours. There is, you know, because everything else about you, you had nothing to do with. You didn't pick your physiology. You, 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 didn't, you didn't pick your race. You didn't pick your height. You didn't pick, you know, uh, your, your eye color, your weight, basically, your stature, your eye. You didn't pick any of that. It just, boom. It all came from the outside. You didn't pick your culture. You didn't pick, you know, you know what town you were born in, in the inner city, or here or there, or whatever else it was. You didn't pick your education or your potential for education, or people helping you learn, or education around you. You didn't pick your social standing, society. All these other things, you didn't pick your family, you didn't pick your inheritance, you didn't pick your privileges. You was all out from this whole conglomeration of other things outside of yourself. And so much of you has already been, you might say, predetermined. All sorts of things known and unknown about you, of which you have no control over, and basically what is, is. And, but, but this is the one part of you there is only one part of you that is unique in the sense that it's absolutely and it's uniquely yours. And it has no race, it has no color, it has no weight, it has no wealth, it has no poverty, it has no inheritance, it has no social standing, it has no family, no physiology at all. And that's your heart. That's it. And the tragic thing is, is that because so few pe people really look at the heart, we spend so much of our time and our energy and effort on the outward appearance. That is something there that basically, you know, in this life, we grow up and just do it everything I can to alter and guide and to get the outward doing the best it can, the, best, the most it can kind of going for it. And the interesting thing is we actually live in a place in the world, and I've been all over the world. I'm talking everywhere in the world many times. Many, many times. I've been to most every country. I've been, I've, I have five millionaire miles. I've been plenty of places. There's no place still like America. In the sense that we know it is wrong to look at the outward appearance. We have so many laws against that, that they don't have any. You, you, you go to many other countries. They don't care. I mean, you, you're dirt. You're, you go to India. I mean, there's a whole class of people they will not even educate. Hundreds of millions of them. You will never get a job. You will never, you know, we're talking there, the low-class Dalits that Zippo. You've been condemned for centuries just because of who, you know, the, the, your nationality. You know, you go to the Middle East, you go down the street as an American, you, you know, you, you know, something, how long, you, how, how far down the street do you think you're going to get before you're gone? I mean, you look at the discrimination, and we know it's wrong to look at the, out. we know it's wrong to judge to people. It's long, wrong to look at the outward, uh, you know, uh, uh, appearance. I mean, we have so many laws, so many, I mean, injustice. Now we've gone, we've gone beyond it. I mean, there when somebody says, I'm a, they're actually a male, but they say, I want to be a girl today. And here is my pronoun. No longer call me a guy. I want you to be called them or something. Else. And now it is discriminated if you don't call them that. It's a hate crime. I mean, we have now gone so far in all of these things of just anything that anybody is, you better accept it, and if you don't, you're a bad person. And you know, in one sense, there's a rightness about that. We know it is wrong to look at the outward appearance. You know, now if I ran a, you know, an employment division of a company or working in the HR department and you realize anybody you interview, if you don't hire them, Boy, they may sue you and stuff and say, boy, they were discriminated against me. And so in that interview, you got to make sure when they come and the attorney said, why didn't you hire them? Was it because it was a woman? I don't know. I can't remember. It was a guy or a girl, a man or a woman, or, a, or you know, was it their sexual orientation? I, I you know, I, I don't, were they, did they have a sex? 
You know, I mean, whenever you have to be something, you, I didn't see anything. I didn't hear anything. I didn't know if it was a guy. I didn't know if it was a girl. I didn't know their sexual identity. I didn't know whether, you know, I didn't know what color they were. You didn't like them, you didn't like them because they were this nationality. No, no, I can't. I, you have to make sure, no, it had nothing. Heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, trisexual, multisexual, you know, or whatever else it is, there's something there. So I don't remember any of that. You know, well, what, you know, what, you know, what were they, a blob? I mean, what, I'll bet that were they a fat blob? No, 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 they weren't a fat blob. I mean, no matter what it is, there, there's something now that we know this political correction, you know, it's gone insane. Because we know, but we don't know how to stop it. You did, how do you, how do you stop people from looking at the outward appearance when that's what there is? And here in this crazy mixed up world, now here we all live. And now maybe some of you, here's the interesting thing. What are your options? Now you grow up and maybe the world has been good to you. Race has been good for you. you your race is popular, it works well. Your color, your heritage, your family, your education, society's been good to you. Your sheer physiology's been good for you. You're, you're good looking, you're talented. You know, you've you're got a great personality. You've got good social upbringing. You've got an inheritance. You've been educated, you're a success. You've got the money in the bank. You've got a house, you've got a car. You've got all this good stuff. And now what do you do? Well, you can look at the world and you can love the world. I love this life. I love this world. It's been good for me. It's all working for me well. You can love it. Or maybe just the opposite. None of it's been any good for you. You look around and you realize there that, you know, my, I'm not a popular race. I didn't get an education. I haven't been trained. I don't have an inheritance. There is no social standing. I, they, they've, I've been held back from all sorts of things all my life. No matter what it is and where I go, I'm judged, I'm rejected, I don't fit in. And there, now you, what do you, the, the one person that the world has been great, they can take their heart and they can be filled with the world. Their heart can, I love this world. And on the other sense, maybe it's been nasty to them. They've been on the short stick in every category and they can hate the world. They can hate it, despise it. I'd love to destroy it. Look at me, and we look so much at many of our inner cities where people have, they, you know, it's been, the world has been a bad experience for them. And they hate it. And out and maybe in the, some of the suburbs, <laughs> and now all of a sudden all we do is, hey, look at the people in the inner city, they're going to come over to my part of town. And if they're not coming over there, the government's going to send them over to my house and have them housing in our school, you know, or something, and shut it down. And, but, and all of a sudden, Everybody is sitting there looking at all this, but one person they can take what they can take their heart and they can fill it with the world, or you can take your heart and you can hate the world. You know, essentially around you. Or you can do what David did. You can do what David did. His father didn't go for him, Saul didn't go for him, you know, uh, or Samuel didn't go for him, Goliath didn't go, his brothers didn't go for him. Nothing went for him. But David was, he said, as the deer panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after thee. David said, one thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I, you know, seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, and behold the beauty of the Lord in choir and temple. I love the Lord. David looked there, and he said, you know, and, and uh, there with it, he says, I want him. world hadn't been a good place for me. I don't fit in too well with it. And he said, but there, God, you want my heart, you've got it. And he gave it to him in a wonderful way, no matter what it was that anybody thought. And you know, when we did just, you know, when, when we look there and say, God, you've got my heart, that's it. And then, yeah, cause, because again, it, it, the world isn't gonna go away. And all of its injustices, it's, it is not a good place for anybody. It's not a good place for the prosperous. It's not a good place for the poverty. It's not, it's, it, because one of them, it sucks them in, and the other one, it spits them out. Either one, it destroys them. One of them just thinks they're happier on the way to destruction, and the other one is miserable. But the thing is, is as you would maybe look at your life, I, you know, I look at you, I just see the outward. You know, I, I keep on looking for a good-looking guy, and 
There might be one in the back that I can't see yet. <laughs> no, I mean, what do we all do? We all, you know, that's, that's, that's what we do. But when we, uh, okay, you, you like him, you see, you guys both. Yeah, yeah. I'll be good looking if you want to be good looking. Okay, we're both good looking. All right, we agree on that. Okay, let's move <laughs> But anyway, uh, I just thought I would share that because, I, you know, when you're growing up and you're going through life, that we, we, so much is the outward appearance. So much of it we'll get wrapped up in it. And you know, I think one of the most wonderful things that there is in life, and I truly mean this, is getting old. I love getting old. More than I love being young. More than a lot of other things, there's something about, you, you know, get, you know I, I started getting old, you know, a long time ago, in one sense. I had a stroke in 1996 and lost a functional vision in my right eye. I had a lung removed a few years after that. Then I had a hip replaced after that. Then I had the other hip replaced after that. And uh, then, you know, I, I, then I ended up having both knees replaced. I've had, I, I, I did, did a lot of dumb stuff when I was growing up. I've had one, this, my right shoulder replaced twice. You know, I've had, you know, I've got prostate cancer. I had all sorts of stuff. You know, there's something, but I start, the, the clock started ticking a long time ago with me. And it was really something there, you just, when you look at life, there and you realize it's going down. And I realized to me it's going down now. I can either be angry and upset and I don't like it and God, this isn't fair. Why? Or else you can look there and say, Lord, I have no idea why. But I've been telling the world for a long time, you're everything. You're everything, and I'm nothing. Now, do I believe that? Do I believe you? You've got my heart, and that's it. Because I'll tell you, one of the things there's, you know, that there, there's, uh, I'd realize at my age, nothing's getting better. Nothing is going to get better. I'm not going to wake up tomorrow with new hips, or new knees, or a new eye, you know, or, or you know, a new lung. And I, none of that's coming. It's all gone, and it's only going to get worse. Now, right now, I'm trying to get scheduled for back surgery. I put it off for years. Every morning when I get up, I can't even stand up straight. Every day, it takes me. I get, I get a cup of coffee, and I. And one of the things to me, I, to, when I get up in the morning, my, my wife she looks at me, watches me get out of bed, and there as I go to stand up, and just it takes me a minute to stand up straight as much as I can. Then I go into the towards the kitchen. And to get a cup of coffee. And to me, if I am upright by the time I get into the kitchen, it's going to be a good day. All right. It's going to be, look at me, I'm already standing straight up. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. You know, you go to you get the little things. And you realize everything else that was once so important. It isn't important anymore. And you realize he's the only thing. And things that I, I, I knew and I preached. I, I'm not saying anything that I didn't say before, only in the sense of resting in it. Resting in that. That's the thing. Can you rest in who you are now? Can you, with while everybody around you is still on the up and up, they're still working their way up the peg, another little peg, another little thing, another little, you know, thing... And being able to say, I'm good. Lord, I'm good. This world is going down. I think one of the things that's becoming universal. When I was young, the world was going up. This was a great place to live. But God has allowed man to be revealed for what he really is. In governments and nations. We're watching everything that was once precious and stable show that it was always innately corrupt, only held back by God. And we're watching God pull his hand back and let man be what he truly is. And soon the church will be taken out and then it'll open the door for the Antichrist and man to be really what he is without restraint. But we're watching God release it. It won't just, I think we just think it's just boom, gonna happen overnight. Ah, it's happening right before us. But in it to realize, but I don't want to be a part of it. Amen. I don't want to be a part of it. I don't want to fit in it. God, take my heart. 
Anyway, questions, thoughts on anything? Time management, what? Yeah. As a pastor, um, specifically, how do you juggle your time with family and ministry? Well, you know, there, uh, this is where I'm awkward, to tell you the truth, because there's all sorts of books, all sorts of things on the priorities of life, God, marriage, you know, children, career, and I mean, you know, that these priority one, priority two, priority, you know, we each thing. I've always kind of struggled with that. And uh, in a sense, I believe that first of all, there's one priority, and that is the Lordship of Christ every day within your life. And, in, in, in the, and one of the things that's very difficult being in the ministry all of my career and having a marriage and, and family, you know, with it is, is trying to balance things, you know, with it. And, uh, you know, because of the fact that when you have a job that, you know, that you, you, know, you go to work, you're an electrician. You know, you're a plumber or you're a banker. You clock in and punch the clock and that's what you are. And then you punch out, you know, you leave your toolbox, you know, and your, and your belt, you know, in the truck or the car and you go home and it's your time. And, but in the ministry, you don't have that. The ministry, your life is very public. You belong to the body of Christ. Sometimes I go to, you know, dinner with somebody and they'll turn to me, oh, pastor, would you pray? And I'll tell them no. I, I'm off duty. <laughs> and they'll look at me, oh, I'm sorry. And they say, wait a minute, you can't be off duty. You're a pastor. People, I mean, there's something you enter into public life and you belong to the body of Christ. And uh, with that, and personally, I love that, but it also can, can make things difficult. And sometimes, and to me, there have been times in my life where the Lord has looked at me and said, here, you know, you've got to sit down with your family and say, hey, right now, here are some things going on, and here's how it's going to be, and, here, and, and this is how it is. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to be able to give the time that, that we want. Now, and, and that's just how it is. But I'll tell you, when I was growing up, my father was in the oil business. And, uh, and we lived in Southern California, but sometimes he'd be gone to Texas for two weeks. In the, or in Oklahoma for a week or two. Even in Ventura you know, or Bakersfield, and be, you'd be there for a few days. He'd be gone. He, he, my father was probably gone about 50% of the time that his career took him out there in the business that he was in. And he was, he was many, many, you know, guys, I mean, they, they work at night or they've got all, you know, but, but the point is, is that sometimes to look there, I mean, God would just show me, okay, right now it's your kids. Right now, you need, you know, you, you, on one hand, rarely did I ever miss a PTA meeting. Rarely when there was something going on, we were at the school, we found there, I'd have to, you know, walk out of the office, I'd have to go and be there, and I knew that. And we had to create things because we, we had such public life and people were in and out of our house all of the time. That I ended up early on, we, we, we started camping. We couldn't afford hotels and other things like that. But we could afford camping, so we just start. We got to get away. This was before cell phones or anything, and we'd get we we got a tent, and we and then my wife was trying to cook for three boys and me in a Coleman stove. It's not gonna work. So then I went and we bought a, a, a vanagon, a Volkswagen. They had this pop top, you know, vanagon. So we got that thing, and then my wife still well, it's you know didn't have a shower, didn't have a bathroom, and it didn't have anything. So then we ended up we we sold that, and we got a little little trailer that you could pull with a car that did have that. But it was, we realized it, but then we ended up getting a bigger one and a guy got me an old truck that we could pull it around because we had to get away. Then we got ATCs there because we lived near a desert where we could go out and we, you know, all the boys just loved cutting, jumping on these, you know, bikes and heading off and just, we'd spend a couple of days, you know, and just purely as a family. We had to work hard to create family time. And, uh, but, uh, but the point of it is inside, sometimes with my wife, I mean, one of the things that's been very fortunate for me is that my wife is also, she's my best friend. And uh, it didn't start out that way, to tell you the truth. Not that we had problems, but I did, when I got, I had all these friends when I was growing up. I grew up in one house. I had all these friends that I always hung out with. And they didn't include women, and they didn't include her. We get married, and I'm still doing all this, and I'm not around that much. Bad priorities. And my wife one time, we're someplace, and she was so sweet. I'll never forget this. She looked at me, just really sweet. And we hadn't been married all that long, but she said, you know something? I said, what? She said, you're my best friend. And when she said that, that just struck me. I actually thought, really? 
I'm your best friend? You gotta be kidding me. Do you think, and I, I was kind of supposed to maybe say, and you're my best friend too, you know, or something. You know, or something, I had kind of, and I'm there, I'm thinking, I was stunned, I didn't, like, I, would, I didn't marry you for a friend, I had friends. I wanted a woman, I didn't have a woman, I wanted a woman, I'd just be the woman. That's all I want, a woman, just whatever women, women do. That, that's what I married you for, you know? And I never realized here 55 years later, all of my other friends, some of them have done their funerals, they've gone other directions, they've moved away, they quit, they left me, they, they divorced me, one by one. And I was left with her, never realizing that one day, along the process, she'd be my best friend. We love traveling together, we love being together. We, you know, to me, I, with all the traveling, when I'm sitting in a hotel or I'm in, you know, restaurant alone or wherever I'm doing, I'm just, you know, just so wonderful to be with her. But I think, but when you build relationships, and, uh, and, and that's one thing I didn't know how to do. I knew how to be one of the guys. I knew how to party. I knew I was, I didn't come to Christ until I was junior college. I knew how to be a fraternity. I knew how to play sports. I knew how to go. You know, I, I was a, a, a handball player and very competitive for years. I ended up, that's what tore my ankles apart. They're shot. They're completely gone. They can't operate on them. My knees, my head, just everything I tore apart. Wouldn't stop playing. And because I love sports, I love these things. And, uh, and but, but tore my, so I, I won't do my back yet. I'm, gonna, I'm actually working on doing that finally because I've got to. But in the process, you know, uh, of, of time, you know, when, of realizing everything else goes, but the Lord you still have. And now I look at my wife, and now I've, I'm looking, at my, I've got three sons, 13 grandchildren, and five great-grandchildren. And we just so love being with them, a part of them. But right now, when you would look at your life, and right now, you know, how many of you are, any, how many of you are married? Wow. I didn't, I didn't know that. Well, let me tell you right now, that's, that's where you need to be looking and saying, God, make me, if you already are married, or if you're getting, God, make me that man. Make me that man. Now, I'm a new Christian when I, uh, you know, I hadn't been a Christian that long. And I, I came to this church. When I came to this church, my family was already going there. I come to the church, and now I'm trying to fit in. But in it, there's, they had a college group of 300, and a bunch of really pretty girls. I started dating the girls, but then I don't know that then, then what they want to get serious. I didn't. I had no idea how to get serious. I had no idea how to honestly hold a relationship like that. And so when they wanted something like that, I backed it. You know, goodbye. I can't handle this. And I'm done. And I went to one another. And, you know, it wasn't terrible to any of them. I just wouldn't go anywhere with it. Well, then here I meet Jean. And she struck me like, uh, I asked her out. A woman who is kind of a counselor to the, to the uh, college group women, she goes to Jean's parents and says, you know, I understand that, you know, Don McClure, now the rest of the family, they're great. They all love the Lord and things, but he's a new Christian. I understand. I heard he's, he's, he's going to date Jean. And I think you need to be aware of him. You know, that he, that, that he gets these girls you know, thinking there's something going on, and then he drops them, and they're heartbroken, and I end up counseling them. And uh, and so I, 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 you need to know this, and Jean needs to know this. So she, I didn't know any of this. So then I take the first date. I take Jean out, and I'm ta I and, and here I am. I got my Impala washed wax. It's cool. I'm dressed. I'm taking her down to the 14th floor of the room at the top on the Occidental Life Insurance Building above Hollywood and Vine, looking down at Hollywood. I'm, you know, giving her, I got the corner booth. I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to show her what's cool. And I take her out there and realize, and then she says, where, where are we going to Hollywood? Hollywood, I've never been to Hollywood. You've never been to Hollywood and you've grown up right now? Oh, man, that'd be great. You know, and well, okay, whatever. She didn't care. And then while we're driving on the freeway, she said, you know, I know a few things about you. I said, oh, do you really? What do you know? And then she tells me. Names of girls. Her, this, all this was supplied to her parents. Her parents sit down and tell her all this. I know about Donna, and I know about Marilee, and I know about Lynn, and I know uh, you know, uh, 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 Susie, Lasore, and what, and I, oh. <laughs> 
I'm quiet. I don't know what to say. And she said, I understand they call you. My name's Don. I understand that. And the name of the church was Lake Avenue Congregational Church. It was a big church. She said, I'm told that they call you the Don Juan of Lake Avenue. <laughs> I'm there. What do you say? I'm, I'm literally lost for words, which is not me. And then she quietly, after a couple of minutes of silence, she said, you know, there's one thing I hope of everybody I ever spend time with in my life. And I said, what's that? She said that for the rest of my life, I can thank God for the time we had together. And my mind began to shoot all these people in my life and think, who could I thank God for time with them? I couldn't come up. I'm just sitting, what about, what about, no, 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 not likely, you know, and stuff. I didn't, ha I didn't have, I didn't know how to do a relationship like that. That night, I mean, a fancy dinner, expensive dinner. She didn't care about the sights. She didn't care about the corner booth. She didn't care about the food. We just sat there. I fell in love more in that night than I ever knew the concept of the word. Because of the fact there was somebody that looked and says, this is what I care about. And let me tell you, you want to know how to manage your time. It starts, first of all, with, how, with who you are towards people and who you are towards your wife or your wife to be that you have yet to meet because I realized why was Jean so much different than I was that I was so tremendously attracted to her and it was because this was the type of person she had been for a long time for a long time she had lived this way her home her family she had grown up in an incredible home in a strong relationship with Christ. She had been, she was one of those that every day got up and read the word, her family, read the word together every night. I'd go over to dinner there and it was almost like they had a, ta a place for Elijah, you know, or something there, there in, in, in case he shows up for dinner. I mean, it was that kind of a world. It was foreign to me, but I was unbelievably attracted to it. And, I re and, and when you look at it and say, I want that, then, you, then when you say, I want to be that man. I want to be that man that one day that woman is looking at me and saying, I thank God for the time we have spent together. And, uh, and, and here, you know, I'm, I'm learning that. But the, uh, so I kind of looked at, there's not, okay, prior to one, two, three, four, I just look at what is God telling you today? One of the things that we have learned through the years is, I don't know how many times we both read through the, through the Bible. I just read straight through it. Jean reads, you know, she's got this program, she jumps all over. And so every day that we get up and we just read, I read my, through my, and, and then we get together and pray. And we pray for our life, we pray for the day, we pray for our children, we pray for our grandchildren by name, we pray for their lives, we pray what's going on. We pray about the ministry that's right in front of us that day. And what do you have for us? Prepare us for this. And uh, uh, in, in, in our heart. And so I'm a little different on time management. That's why you know, I, I think everybody though has got to find what works for them. The, I do know, like, you know, uh, you know, David looks, he says, oh God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth, my heart panteth after thee in a dry and thirsty land. So I look toward thee in thy sanctuary to see thy power and thy glory. David early. He knew I need to start the day with the Lord. I need to make sure that his power and his glory is upon my life. Early will I seek thee. You know, I think a lot of people, you, you, you close the day with the Lord. You usually got a lot of repenting to do. Lord, I blew it today. Sorry about that. But when you start the day, Lord, I don't want to blow it. Lay out the day. There's nothing, the sun comes up, his mercy is anew every day. It is a new day. You start over with a clean slate. But when you end up the day with a bad slate, because you didn't know how to start with a clean one and what to do. And so uh, I think to me, if there's one habit, I've found that if people determine that they are going to be in the word every day of their life. Now, sometimes, well, it's funny, when we travel, sometimes I get up and all of a sudden we got to go. We had a meeting. And if one of the first things with me, I, uh, you know, and then I, different parts of my body wake me up through the night. <laughs> you know, I said, you're not sleeping here. I, I, I want to talk to you, you know. Something. <laughs> so we have a chat with that. I, and, uh, I used to wake up really early. Now, Gene, 
she wakes up like four and five every day, no matter where we are, just like a clock in Turner, it just mm-hmm. goes off. And she's already, she's got her Bible out and she's got her journal out and she's got all, and she's got these little Bible lights there so she doesn't wake me up. Things that she's going on and writing and doing all of this stuff. And then I get up and I need coffee. I don't want to know anything until I've had coffee. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I got to somehow or another tell my body it's time to get up, buddy. Yeah, the day's got to get going. But to me that every day though you're going to be in the Word and you're going to pray. And you're going to give the day. And you're still going to mess it up. You're still going to mess it up because you're still following. But um, anyway, other questions, you know, time or whatever. Right now, I was one of the things Gene started doing early. You know, because one time she got talking, you know, about, uh, you know, when she was a little girl, something about, you know, getting married. And her mother, I think it was her mother, told her, you know, right now your husband is somewhere on the planet. He's alive. You can start praying for him right now, wherever he is. And that God will have his hand on his life. And, the, uh, and she learned that. You know, I mean, if you're married, or you're not married, there's, there, and you, 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 you want to get married, you want to have a wife, you want to have a family, she's out there somewhere. And uh, I mean, you, Lord, wherever she is. And you know, it's interesting, I, I actually met Jean at church they, uh, on a New Year's Eve. They had this big New Year's Eve kind of party at the church, some music and stuff, and then after their little, you know, gathering down in the gym at the church, they had, you know, cake and punch and stuff. And I go down there, I met her there, just in passing. And I didn't know it, of course, I just hadn't met her, but she went home. And she was actually in college in, in Santa Barbara, and, and she got talking to her mother. And my family, there's three bo- four kids, but three boys. We're all a year apart, my family. And my family was there, and they, were, they got pretty well known somehow or another. Church. My brother married the pastor's daughter. I had, but we were all, they got pretty well in, ingrained within the church somehow or another, invisible. I come along, Johnny come lately type of a thing into it, a new Christian and things, but only so, oh, another McClure boy is here or something. Well, here, Jean, uh, she's at this, this thing, and she comes home, and after that, she's talking to her mom. Somehow or another, you know, you know she's talking to her, what's it like to really fall in love? She'd had boyfriends, a ton of them. And, uh, and she, but she said, I, I don't know if I've ever been in love. And her mom says, well, somebody's out there. And do you think there's anybody that you even think about now? And she said, well, you know, I... I met this guy, Don McClure. She said, oh, I know the family. Yeah, they're a great, great family. <laughs> you know, and oh, really? She didn't, that's all she knew is our family. She said, I'm in a prayer group with her mother. Uh, with her mother, you know, oh. And so she said, well, let's just pray for him if God wants me. This was New Year's Eve. In September, she's back and she's around. I go to prayer meeting at the church. They had a general group and then they broke into college group and there's a six or eight of us that go into the college group for prayer. And she's sitting there. And next to me, and I looked at her, I said, haven't I met you somewhere? And, and, and she said, oh, that's a great line. And I said, no, really. I, 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 and she said, yes, you did meet me. And then she tells me when. I said, oh, I, read, no, you know, I said, yeah, I, and I knew that. Well, I had, since I had met her, a lot of things changed within my life dramatically. God had broken off, separated, moved me in a whole new way. And I made a vow kind of to the Lord, I'm not going to date again. So you show me who you want. And I'd had this for nine months. I'm at this prayer meeting and then we get talking about the pastor's daughter who I knew real well who had broken an ankle or something. And she had talked about her and I said, well, you know, I was going to maybe go by and see her. You want to go? I'll take you. And she said, yeah, I would like to see her. And she said, I need to go ask my mom. I thought you're in college. You need to ask your mother. And so I see her walk over across the room and to her mother. Her, she's to my back, her mother, and she's saying something to her mother, I don't know what. But her mother looks over from her and looks over and sees me standing over there, like about the distance between you. And, and she looks at Jean with a big smile on her face. What's that? Jean comes, she says, okay, let's go. So we, but then I, real, I realize when she's over there, Lord, this is not a date. I'd like I broke my vow, I'm going to have to start all over again. I've been really holding this good, you know, no dates. And I was afraid, Lord, don't let her go. If I'm not supposed to go, well, she comes back, well, let's go. So I take her over there, and we just talk, you know, over things, but it was, and then brought her home. 
but the uh, we didn't really have any serious thing then but it was something there that her mother ended up she smiled and because that's the, that's the guy that we were praying about and so to me when you just right now or if you're married lord you know, i want her to be my best friend you don't need you don't worry about her becoming a wife and a mother and all that you know one of the, the greatest thing in life i think sometimes you may say you you know the lord looked at adam i mean at abraham and he said you're my friend I think one of the greatest rewards that there is, God, you know, Jesus, he, he told the disciples, he says, you are no longer servants, but you are my friend. A servant knoweth not what his master does, but I'm letting you know because you're my friend. You're my fellow. And after Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac, the Lord says, you're my fellow. You're my friend. We get each other now. And I think one of the neatest things is when you look at another person, and you actually get them. Like last night, Ken was talking about how good, you know, it's wonderful. It was, there's one. I don't know what Adam was like when he was just one, when Eve was inside of him. All I know is, is when the guy woke up, something was gone. Something was missing. He didn't know what happened to me. And he looked over and he says, Behold, she's bone in my bone and flesh in my. There's the rest of me. There's the softness, the tender, the compa all these other things that were once somehow or another with him, they're gone. And it's over there and it's in another body. You know, one of the things I think when you marry, I mean, I look there at my wife, I hug her. If I could pull her right inside myself, I would. That's where she belongs. She's, my, she's the completion of me. She's the other, she's the feminine. Yeah. I mean, I see these people that say, you know, your problem is, buddy, you need to get in touch with your feminine side. I mean, yeah, I don't know if you ever heard that kind of stuff. I'm sitting there thinking, are you kidding me? I have no desire to get in touch with my feminine side. None at all. There's my feminine side right there. I, and, and I don't want to get in touch with my feminine side any more than I want my wife to get in touch with her masculine side. No. I'm no deal. I don't want it. You know. But when you look there and just realize, you know, if you've got a wife there to look there and, God, how do we become friends? I want her to be my friend, not my combatant. Many times when you're young and you're married, it's, it's back and forth. She's trying to, you know, help you, you know, and um, there's the funniest video. I don't know why I mentioned this, but it, it, my helper in the car, some comedian guy, I can't think of his name, he's a Christian comedian. He talks about his wife, a help, helper in his car, it's hilarious. You can go Google it, but it, I mean, on how it shows just how we sometimes just don't connect well. But when we realize I want that. But it takes, you know, and one of the things about homosexuality, homosexuality, you know, if, 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 when you're married, you realize there, there's, there's two different sexes, and, and you operate entirely different, entirely different, and uh, you're with each other. And basically, it takes love to make love. It takes loving somebody else and what goes on under their skin and their heart more than yourself. You know, it takes something there where I, you know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says that the husband's body is not his own, but it belongs to the wife. Mm -hmm. And the wife's body is not hers, belongs to him, that we are made there to minister one to another. And we respond to entirely different things. And basically it takes love to make love, you know, with it. And in every aspect where you really love that person and you're, you're in pardon me, making love. And what I mean by that is not the sexual, that's one aspect of it, but in the kitchen or in the house or in around or in the, wherever you're doing, I'm there loving to love you. Who are you? What's going on under your skin and caring for them more than yourself. And that's, and that's what, you know, when you, when you learn that, you've learned a wonderful thing for your marriage. Paul says, he that loveth his wife loves himself. You want to do yourself a favor, husband, love your wife. You'll be the happiest guy on the planet. For Jesus, he presented to himself a glorious church without spot or wrinkle. He poured his life into the church, sacrificed everything for it, because one day I see what I get back. I see a lot of people that have miserable marriages for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and they can hardly wait to have this end, you know, with it, because they're sitting there, I'm sick of you, you know, tired of you, and, uh, you know, and, and they're, they're done with each other, because the fact that they, you know, they're so different. Homosexuality, all homosexuality is, is taking two systems 
that operate under the same stimulus, like the same things, are all like alike bodies, like everything, and now just do to each other what makes you happy. And all of a sudden, somebody or a lesbian does that, a woman does it with another, wow, you understand me. No, she just understands herself. And she's just doing to you what she wants. And he's, that's all in homosexual it is. It's just two like systems satisfying themselves with another one in the room. And it's the selfish. It's a self-absorbed life. Well, we are living in such a self-absorbed world now in every way. Everybody's find yourself. Discover yourself. You're a boy, be a boy. You want to be a girl, you want to be a girl. You want to be whatever it is. You want to be fluid about it. You, want, you go find yourself. Everybody's looking for themselves. And, uh, and here, the, 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 and they end up destroying themselves. Anyway, no, another question. I'm just kind of flying all over here. Anything else? I, when our time's up, Zach just say, hey, you're done, buddy. Don, we're going to take this last question, and after it, you guys can send any questions to the QR code, and Don will do the Okay, one more question. So, yes. Well, something back in the 1960s, a terrible, terrible thing happened in the United States that people don't even understand that happened. And that was America basically, historically, was based upon the family with an identity that the father went to work. He went out and he plowed the field, he dug the wells, he went to war, built the house, and the old, t I mean, that's, that's what he did. You know, he was the laborer, he was the backbone. He was the provider. He took care of this generation. The mother, she had the job of, re of producing the next one, pouring her life into that, the children, and, uh, and loving and caring and nurturing and being there for them. And so it was something that that's basically what society was until the explosion of the women's movement. Mm -hmm. Gloria Steinem and another thing that came along that said there, we want equality. We, a woman can do whatever a man can do. He can, anything he can do, I can do better. And in many cases, that's true. Now, historically, that was never a desire because basically through most all of human history, there's been only basically two careers. And that is, are you gonna grow it or are you gonna herd it? You had you know, cattle or sheep or you, you farmed it or you grew it and it required a backbone. And it was a tough job for the woman just to prepare the, move, the, the meals, to get the bread needed. You know, I mean, it was tough for her system. He had the backbone. He had the strength to do one. She didn't want to be that. He had no desire to do that. But her life was poured into the next generation of loving and caring and providing for it and nurturing it. One day, you know, things changed where all of a sudden women said, we want equal jobs. We want equal pay. We want to go do it. And they, and they found they could because now we're not doing backpacking work. Now a lot of women are watching their husband, you know, get the nice car, the nice suit because he's a salesman. And yeah, I got to go play golf with the guy there because that's, that's how I sell my stuff or whatever else. He's got a cushy life and her thinking somewhat while she's there, same old thing, washing the clothes, keeping the kids, listening to them yell and scream, trying to do all of this all day long. And she, and she I can do that stuff. And then they also realized that when she could go out to work, that all of a sudden now you've got two incomes. That two incomes now allowed you to go, you know, now, hey, we want a nicer house. We want a newer car. 
And if you go to work, and so at first it was kind of part-time, it was kind of just jumping into it and getting something, so now we could, but now all of a sudden we've got to pay that house payment for 30 years, or we've got to do this. And now next thing you know, they started getting full into the workforce. Not just kind of part-time, not just, well, what that did, at that point, house prices, home, the economy, boomed. Home values, now all of a sudden, everybody can buy a, a newer house. Everybody can move up. Women are going to work. And if you're not going to work, now all of a sudden, you're holding the family back. And now, next thing you know, a lot of women are having to go and find jobs due to you know, something, and then you're dropping your kids off somewhere for somebody to take their, to, to do that job. And the result is, I think we're losing a generation. I, and one of the things with me, I've never made a lot of money. Never made a lot of money. You know, I'm a good capitalist to me. Everything you give me, I put right back in the economy. <laughs> I'm just a good old guy. Spend it all my life. And here, but there's something there that I determined. My wife is never going to work. She, she'll, when we first got married with no children, she had little part-time jobs and things and worked in a rest home and other things, doing it to help us. But then once we're looking at a family, we determined I, I am not going to require you to have any income at all. You're not going to have a job. We are going to, for the rest of our lives, live on what I do. I want you to take care of our children. I, you know, I, I want you at home. And, and she, and, and I've always said, if you're involved in ministry, it's because you please, you, you do not have a job, you know, structure. You don't have a responsibility other than what you feel God has called you. Now, she's always loved women's ministry, so she's always poured a lot of time in that. But at the same time, it's always been about our children and being with them and raising them. And I think, and, and on one hand, could we have had bigger houses, nicer cars or whatever? Yeah, we sure could have. But we don't need them. My wife drives a 2005 Toyota. I drive a 2012. I'm the fourth owner of a, of a BMW that somebody kind of said, hey, here, you want a BMW? Yeah, you know, but it, it's got a hundred and something. I don't care. It gets me around. And everything works. You don't need, and, we, and God has incredibly taken care of us. He's provided for us. Now, when my parents and her parents passed away recently, a few years ago, we got, you know, we found us in a better place. But at the same time, for most all of our life, we lived from paycheck to paycheck for most all of our, all, all the years raising our kids. Whenever, you know, and, and I think, I, w I really exhort, you know, because many of you, you're moving into a world that is going to require your children being without parents to the degree they need them, and they will suffer, I believe. And I think that, when, you know, if right now you don't have children, fine. And she can go provide something and you put it in there, but I would say don't ever allow yourself to one day, she has to do something. I would just, that's just my, I'm, I'm a very strong believer in that. For your, for your sake, I sit there now, I mean, I look at my boys and my, and you know, it's funny, my kids, we have three sons. I mean, they, they love me, and we, we do, we, we got a great family. My boys call their mother almost daily. Daily. They've been there, they're 48 to 53 years old. And they still add their love for their mother. Makes me sick to tell you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just seeing if you're. But I mean, they absolutely, and their memories, and their our vacations. They remember almost every vacation when we got them away. Whatever you got to do, get your family away and in the city where you got to get them out. You know, you can have fun times of birthdays. They forget that stuff. But when they're away and you priority there, so I just you know whatever I. If you're getting caught in that, uh, because next thing you know, you do something, and now for the next 30 years, we got that mortgage, and uh, and 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 we don't want that. And the uh, so I that's that's my I would just to do whatever you can do. If you're in it, try to work your way out of it. If you if your kids, because they're the ones that are paying for it. And, uh, and many times we're throwing them into a school system or thrown into neighborhoods that are so destructive. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this time. 
Lord, I pray for these men that being men of God, that they would be ones that set a priority within their life to say, I am going to find time in my life. I'm going to whatever I have to do, set the alarm early or whatever it is to sit before you. And Lord, of all the most time management thing in all the world is how do we start the day? And if we start there, Lord, if we marriages start there, that to me, the greatest advice in the world is do you pray together and are you in the word of God? If, like Billy Graham once said, families that pray together stay together. And Lord, if they, you can have everything else in the world that seems going for you, but if you're not doing that consistently, you will suffer. And Lord, I pray that you'll help these men right now in their lives. They're not married or whatever, but still look there and say, that's no excuse. My time management starts when I wake up. And then you lead the day. And Lord, I pray that you'll make each one of these men men of God first. And then godly husbands and godly fathers. And Lord, that your hand will be upon them and they can set now priorities that one day they can look back. They don't think 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, or 55 years on my case. I never looked back when I got married and thought one day I'm going to be looking at this woman 55 years from now. But Lord, that's it. And I'm so grateful for her, but only because of you. And so we thank you for your love and your mercy. Help us and strengthen us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.